the book of Haggai. It's not a trick. It really is in there. Uh, my pastor got up one day and, and uh, did that, and he called out a name. I can't remember what he said. Um, it sounded like a good Bible book, but uh, it wasn't real. It was funny. He let everybody stand up, and everybody's trying to, you know, find it, and you're listening for about a 30 seconds or so, and then he finally says, I hope you don't find that because it's not in there. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but uh, I promise the book of Haggai is in there. It's a small book. It's right after Zephaniah, right before Zechariah. And if you know, uh, Zechariah is the last book of the Old Testament. And so if you can find Zechariah, I'm sorry, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you'll find Malachi and turn back one book to Zechariah, and then right before Zechariah, you'll find Haggai. Anyways, get used to them ayahs and ayahs. Anyways, Haggai. Uh, and uh, when you find your place, let's stand in honor and reverence to the reading of the Word of God. Haggai chapter number one, there's only two chapters in the little book. I'm going to tell you something, Haggai is part of the Minor Prophets, and the Minor Prophets is a section of the Bible, uh, Zephaniah, Jonah, Micah, Haggai, and, uh, all of those are part of uh, Nahum and, and uh, Obadiah and, and Malachi and Zechariah, those are all labeled as Minor Prophets, but let me tell you something, uh, they, <laughs> they might be minor as far as small books in the Bible, but there is nothing minor about the messages that these prophets prophets preached, and Haggai is no exception to that. As a matter of fact, uh, the book of Haggai is a chronicle of four sermons that Haggai preached to the people of Israel, and let me tell you something, well, you'll find out by the end of the day, uh, they packed a punch, and um, we're just going to look at one of them this morning, but if the Lord leads me, we may just preach the next couple Sundays through Haggai here, I don't know, but today we're going to look at verse uh, chapter number one, and, and uh, here's, here's the problem. The problem is, uh, 16 years after the rebuilding of the temple of God had begun, the people had yet to finish the project. The reason they hadn't finished the project is because their personal affairs had intervened with the building of God's house. And uh, so God sends Haggai here to preach a fiery set of sermons to God's people and so we're going to look at that this morning. Look with me. I'm only going to read the first five verses for sake of time, but we're going to look down through here. In verse number one, in Haggai chapter one, the Bible says this. In the second king of Darius, the second king, the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet under Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your 
ways. I want to preach a little bit this morning on the thought, why does my house lie in waste? Thank you for standing. You can be seated this morning. Why does my house lie in waste? Today we're here. I've already alluded a little bit to what the book of Haggai is all about, but we're going to dig into it a little bit further. It's an interesting little book and and uh, uh, Haggai, he, he, uh, he had a lot to say in very few words. And, and uh, what I could say, if I had to summarize the entire book up into one sentence, it would be this right here. The message of Haggai is this. Your houses are not being blessed because God's house is not being built. Y'all get that. Your houses are not being blessed because God's house is not being built. Now there was an exile that took place in somewhere around uh, 538 B.C. and we can find a record of all of this over in the book of Ezra. King Cyrus of Persia had allowed the exiled Jews, some 50,000 of them, to return to Jerusalem being led by Zerubbabel after they had been in captivity for around 70 years. Two years after this uh, return, uh, this construction on the temple began, and that was the entire reason they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. That was their point. That was all. They were to come back and start building the house of God again, the temple of the Lord. And so two years, okay, so here they go. They come back. They spend two years getting the work started. And then after they started the work, they worked about two years and then stopped. And so they go and neglect the rebuilding of the temple somewhere around 14 years. The work on the temple resumed in the year 520 B.C. and was finally finished four years later in 516 B.C. Now, if y'all figured up them numbers real quick, it's pretty amazing what happens here. The people on their own accord go under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua represented the spiritual leadership. Zerubbabel, uh, um, Zerubbabel, y'all say that five times fast and y'all won't laugh at me. But uh, he represented the governing leadership there. And so they go under those leaders and uh, take some two years to get started. They work for another two years and then get lazy. And then they let it set for some 14 years. And let me go ahead and tell you what ends up happening. The prophet of God, Haggai, shows up with a fiery sermon for him, straight from the mouth of God, and it takes them only 23 days to get right, and it takes them only another four years to do the whole temple rebuilt. Isn't that amazing? Let me just go ahead and tell you before I get into the message, and that's the focus of all the message, but uh, the whole message, but it didn't take them long once they got right with God to get the work of God done. Y'all pick it up and all that already? And so uh, I just throw in those numbers out there. I mean, that's pretty amazing right there. And so 
Like I said, you can read all about that over in the book of Ezra. I'm not going to quote all of the scripture just for the sake of time. But when these people had come back into Jerusalem, gone was the glory of the former kingdom. Gone was the glory of the former temple. Gone was the great population. And all that was left was a pile of rubble when it came to Jerusalem. The remnant of the people had a task. The only thing that was there when they showed up was the rubble and... uh, the rubble of Jerusalem, the remnant of the people, and the task of restoration. That's all that was in Jerusalem at this time. And so we find that Haggai showed up on the scene with a call to action from the Lord. And after 14 years of delay, the message inspires the people to get back to work in only 23 days, as I've already mentioned there. I've read several times now a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And in that book, Tom Rainer talks about the decline that, that he sees in churches that are dying. He wrote this. He said, often the decline is in the physical facilities, but it is much more than that. The decline is in the vibrant ministries that once existed. The decline is in the prayer lives of the members who remain. The decline is in the outward focus of the church. The decline is in the connection with the community. The decline is in the hopes and dreams of those who remain. He says this, decline is everywhere in the church, but many don't see it. Can I illustrate it this way? It's often like losing weight. When you don't lose weight very fast, and my doctor says that's the proper way to lose weight. If you don't lose weight, if you will lose weight slowly, you'll keep the weight off. And so the problem with that is people like to see results, don't they? But when you lose weight slowly, the results don't come overnight, do they? And oftentimes we'll be, I'll just be going on with my life and I'm not weighing and I'm not doing things. But every now and again, I'll find somebody that hasn't seen me for three or four months and they'll say, man, you're losing some weight, aren't you? You know what I say a lot of times? I don't know. I can't tell. Why is that? Because I'm here every day. I don't see the decline. But someone who hasn't seen it in a while will automatically pick up on the decline. And the church is the same way. He writes in that book, most of the people in our churches don't see the decline because they're here. And it's good for you to be here. The problem is we get comfortable. And when we get comfortable, we don't see all the time what is going on. It sums up uh, much of what we're going to see with the people uh, here in this passage of Scripture. And here's the thing, the house of God at the beginning, I'm going to tell you, and we're going to apply this, I'm gonna, it's not going to be an easy message, but it is the Word of God. I want you to understand this today. Decline is everywhere in the church, but many don't see it. And this is what sums up much of what we see going on with the people here in the book of Haggai. The house of God at the beginning of Haggai is in ruins. What was the problem? Well, as we will see in a moment, the people had their interest on themselves. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead and give you some more stuff from this book, uh, uh, The Autopsy of a a Deceased Church. He studied, uh, the writer of that book studied 14 different churches that had closed their doors. And many of them, he looked at their budgets. He looked at what they had when they closed their doors. He talked to several members, some deacons, some of them even the pastors that were there. And all of them had certain things in common. 
One of them that they had in common is when they closed the door, a lot of them had money in the bank. But yet, one of the things that they had started that he saw on there when they started cutting their budget and cutting the money out, it was on the things they needed to keep. In other words, certain churches, on most of them, he recorded that they would cut outreach ministries before they cut something inside the church. You may not realize it, but you know the message that that sends, that means, that sends the message that what's going on inside of here is more important than what's going on outside here. Y'all, that's not biblical. It's not biblical because everything, you know what that, you know what a church is not doing when they do things like that? They're not taking the great commission at heart. They're not. And so the people had their interest on themselves. And we're going to look at this. Some New Testament passages come to my mind when I think about how many churches today only worry about themselves and they don't worry about the world outside of them. They don't worry about the community outside of them. Here's some Bible for you. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 tells us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not in the work of building yourself up. Not in taking care of your four and no more. It says... Abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hey, as long as you are working for God, as long as you are working to build the kingdom of God, nothing you do will be in vain. But honey, I'm going to tell you something. When you start working for yourself and all of your interest is in yourself, you'll be working in vain. I'm going to show you from the book of Haggai how true that is today. The first thing I want you to notice Well, let me back up a second. The people here in the book of Haggai, the people, the children of Israel here, they were not seeing the flourishing that they expected. And Haggai reminds them that this is due to their apathy. And we all know what apathy is. It's simply a I don't care attitude. You see, prosperity breeds apathy. See, when we get comfortable and we have all of our needs met, you know what the problem of Laodicea was? It was apathy. The the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, we find, they said that, hey, we've got our gold, we've got our beautiful places, we've got everything that we need, and we have need of nothing. But what did God say about them? God said that they were poor, and they were miserable, and they were blind, and they were naked. Why is that? Because... They had their mind and their their attitudes on themselves and it had turned apathetic. It had turned them, hey, I'm going to tell you, uh, when when we become apathetic, we sit back and we are comfortable. We have our needs met and the rest of it don't really matter because we're pretty comfortable. That's what we see in our churches today. It's all over. Mm, Every church, I'll just say it. God didn't mince words. I don't know why preachers think we have to. Y'all know what I mean? Every church I've ever preached in has a spirit of apathy in it. Now I said every church. 
Even this church. There's a spirit of apathy everywhere and it, it, it is in every church and it is a disease like cancer and it is eating away at our churches. And I tell you what, if we'll heed what the book of Haggai's got here, we'll get somewhere. First thing I want you to notice right here is the people had a problem prioritizing their comfort over God's temple. Let me show you that. Look in verse number two. We see... We see a key word right here in verse number two. We see procrastination right here. Look at what it says. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, This people say the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. So we're met straightway here in this passage with an excuse for the lack of work. In essence, the people were saying, It's just not the right time to continue building the temple. Let's wait and then the time will be right. Man, that sounds good sometimes, don't it? Sometimes it's not the right time to do things. That's why we have to have spiritual discernment. But we're going to see that the problem goes deeper than this right here in just a minute. But here's the thing. Sometimes it's not the right time. But let me ask you something today. How many times do we put off doing what we know is the right thing? How many, how many people say one of these days I'm going to be saved although they know that their life is nothing but a vapor? How many times people say I know I need to speak to my friend about his soul but the time just ain't right? Best thing you can do is just go ahead and stomp that lie out. How many people say, I'm going to teach a Bible class one of these days. I'm going to study the Word. I'm going to become more knowledgeable of the Word, but I'm just so busy right now. How many people say, I'm going to apologize for that wrong idea, but today just ain't the right day. And I just tell you, when it comes to the work of the Lord, it's time to stop making excuses and it's time to get busy. John chapter 9 verse 4 tells us, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. There are certain things in our life we don't have to pray over and we don't have to wonder if it's the will of God. And we don't have to wonder if it's the right time. What we are supposed to do is just do it. There's a lot of things like that. In other words, here's what God is saying to us. We must do what we can when we can. We're not always going to have that opportunity that we have today. We're not always going to have that opportunity to get saved. We're not always going to have that friend to speak to about their soul. We're not always going to have the health and the strength to teach that class. We're not always going to have that relationship that we need to mend. We're not always going to have these things. As a matter of fact, you may not have them tomorrow. So what about you? Are we going to wait till it's too late to act? All we have is today. And so we see a procrastination here in verse 2, but we also see priorities. We see them in verse 3 and 4. Look at what the Bible says in verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Oh, now we're getting to the truth of the matter. Oh, God knows. God knows what's up. The word of the Lord was a powerful condemnation of the Israelite people. See, at this point in time, these people, they were fairly established after their return from exile. And they had built homes for themselves. They had built businesses. They were settled in their regular routines. Man, who does that sound like today? 
Come on. Who's it sound like? Yeah. In spite of this, what which seemed great on the outside, hey man, these people are doing good for themselves. They're, they're being responsible. They're, they're really making it. They're really doing good for themselves. And that is the problem. That's the problem. Themselves. In verse 4, we find an interesting phrase. We find sealed houses. Look at that. C-I-E-L-E-D, houses. I ain't never heard that word before of y'all. Here's, here's what it says when you study it out. A sealed house is a paneled house. A paneled house is a sign of luxury. Much like even today. Let me just illustrate it this way. If you see a home with wood siding, you know somebody spent some money on that. Right? Not only does it cost more initially... But the maintenance on it is very expensive. I used to service these houses up in the mountain there and vacation homes. They'd have their log cabins. They'd have their houses. They'd put, they'd put the wood siding on them. And man, I wouldn't have wood siding on my house for nothing in the world. Not only is the initial investment really expensive, but every single year, here's what they would do. The, the cost to do pest control on it was more expensive. Well, why is that? Because there's more to worry about. Man, them carpenter bees get in it like crazy, and instead of just walking around and spraying a normal house, what you got to do on them things, you got to protect them from the carpenter bees, you got to protect them from the termites, you got to protect them from anything and everything because that wood attracts all of it. So instead of just getting your little gallon sprayer out and spraying around like we normally do, you got to put on the backpack blower and you got to mist that whole house from top to bottom to keep the bugs away from it. Cost more. Cost more to do pest control on a house like that. It costs more every year. Can you imagine some of these people? It blew my mind how much they paid. Uh, every year they would have to have somebody come in and pressure wash the paneling, and then they'd have to uh, reapply the uh, sealer and the uh, uh, the protectant on it. It's just expensive. You know what it means to me when I saw that? It means somebody got money. Well, guess what? In the Bible it meant the same thing. A paneled house, it's an expensive thing. And so uh, that's why in our day, vinyl siding's so popular. Vinyl siding's easy to mess with. But anyways, I'm not here to give you a lesson in all of that. It's just an illustration for what's going on. The wood for these paneled houses that we find in verse number 4 would have even required... And we find this over in the book of Ezra. It, it required that expensive timber be imported. And this word in Hebrew even goes further to indicate that the homes were well appointed or comfortable even. So let me go ahead and clarify something here. God is not condemning these things. He's condemning the children of Israel because of their misplaced priorities. They didn't just have a house. They had a luxurious house. All the while, God's temple sitting back here in ruins. That's the problem. They said the temple wasn't complete because it wasn't the right time. But God looks at them and says, Hey, y'all, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house lie in waste? Of course, what he's referring to there is this house is his temple. These are strong words and they're intended to clarify the radical disparity between their own standard of living 
and the condition down at the house of God. They were living in comfort while God's house remained unbuilt and God's will remained undone. And the danger for the Israelite people was not that they had abandoned the building of the temple. It was because they had abandoned God. I mentioned something in Sunday school this morning. I mentioned this right here. Before you break any of the other commandments, you'll break the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. See, abandoning the building of the temple was bad enough, but that was just a testimony to the real problem, and that is the people abandoned God before they ever abandoned the building of His temple. Their comfort rose in importance. Their fear of the Samaritans, among others, was greater than the fear of God, and they succumbed to the pressure of self-preservation. You see, why is it that we, we lie? Let's just think about the Ten Commandments for a second because I was talking about that this morning. Why is it that we lie? Why is it that we cheat? Why is it that we steal? Why is it that we covet? Why is it that we do all these things? It's self-preservation. It's selfishness. And we'd never have it if we didn't first break that commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, preacher, I don't have any other God. Yes, you do. That right there. That's why so many times we abandon the work of God. That's why we abandon uh, God. That's why we abandon God's house. Because at some point in time, we decide that what we want is more important than what God wants. Our comfort is more important than what God wants. We sat here, and let me just get very real with you. Because it's in the context of what's going on here. We put money and put money and put money into our own houses. And we never give a drop to God's house. We take care of our house better than we take care of God's house. That's what's going on here. I'm not out of context. It was not hard to apply this. (laughs) Figure out the application of this scripture right here. Self-preservation. See, these people, they they had a hard time. They were not only tasked with building this, this temple, but they had opposition. They had people that didn't like what they were doing. And so as a matter of fact, back in the book of Ezra, and we'll talk more about this tonight, but uh, over in the book of Ezra, you find that people were writing letters about them that were not so. And they were trying to make them stop doing the... Because, hey, when you do... The, <laughs> let me just say, whenever you do the work of God, somebody's not going to like it. It's not always easy to do the work of God. But it is necessary. It is necessary. And so what ended up happening? Well, they got tired of fighting all the people. They got tired of fighting the opposition. They just went with the flow and they started building everything up for themselves and it was all great. How about us today? Where are our priorities at? Are you taking care of yourself but not God's work? If so, you're wrong. The second thing I want you to notice this morning is ignoring God's house led to a lack of blessing. Look at this. We find reflection in verse 5 and 6. This is really interesting. He says, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. 
Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. My, 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 my. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. I'm still seeing us all through this. We see a calling here to consider your ways. The Hebrew figure of speech for this is literally put your heart on your roads. What that means, Haggai is asking God's people to consider what direction their lives were heading and if they really wanted to continue heading in that direction. God tells them in verse 6 that they planted but did not harvest like they expected. This lack of harvest was leading to a lack of satisfaction and a lack of provision. He goes on and on with other illustrations like drink and clothes and income. All these things that they did were less than they expected. And the reason behind it was their delayed obedience to God. They didn't even see it though. They didn't even understand that. Until the prophet of God shows up and says, consider your ways. Haggai here described a double curse. Instead of much, little was reaped. And the little that was brought home melted away without doing any good. That's what is meant by he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Now we all know that that won't work. Man, that's like going on payday, getting that check cashed, and, and putting it right through your wallet with a hole in it, and it just falling right out the other side. At the end, the beginning is no better than where, you, I mean, where you're at is no better than where you started. It's like running on a treadmill. It'll give you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. I don't know of any Bible passage that describes our age better than this. Hey, we're so busy today, but it seems like we accomplished nothing. In this passage, we are literally talking about the judgment of God. Yes, I said that. One of the reasons why in our day, I believe it with all my heart because we see it here in the Bible, I believe so much of what we see today is the judgment of God and we don't even realize it. The Lord continually punished the Jews in Haggai's day why? Because they didn't put first things first. God continues to punish those who don't put first things first. Well, preacher, that's Old Testament. I'm glad you said that. Go to Luke chapter number 12, verse 47, and you'll prove my point there. The Bible says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. No, I'm not saying that I'm going to take a stick and beat you with it. But you know what? I would say this. By the time God gets done with us, we probably wish we had just took a beating with a stick. Y'all ever been there? I, I can say amen to that because I've witnessed it. The judgment of God is not a fun thing to endure. You know what we need to do? We need to consider our ways. God, uh, will God punish us because we fail to put first things first? Just think about it. Is God going to punish you because you fail to put first things first? Are we going to be more concerned with our needs and desires than the needs of those around us? 
Guess what? If so, God's going to be far from pleased. Are we going to be more concerned with our own needs and desires than with the work of the Lord? If so, God is going to be far from pleased. Will the Lord punish you because you failed to put the first things first? So here's another word I found in this passage. We see the word remedy. We see the word remedy. What is the remedy? Look in verse number 7. He says it again. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Let me just go ahead and pause here for a second and say, if you'll put your priorities where they're supposed to be, God will take care of your house while you take care of his house. Amen. Verse number 10 says, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. God is literally telling them, hey, the reason you ain't doing as good as you think you should be, the reason why you're working all the time and you never seem to have, never can seem to be satisfied, is because I am literally scattering your goods. The reason you didn't bring in as much corn as you thought you should is because I literally blew half of it down the road. That's what he's saying. And then he's gracious enough to say, why did I do it? Because my house is lying in waste. And you're only caring about yourself. Hmm. What's the remedy, preacher? What's the remedy here? Well, the remedy is simply this. Get to work. God tells them again the reason they're not blessed is because His house has been ignored and the trouble they face is His judgment for the lack of effort to be obedient to His will. See, here's the thing. They, the original excuse is it's just not the right time. Maybe in their mind, they thought somebody else would come along and do it. I don't know. That tends to be a trend when we all get comfortable, right? Oh, it'd be all right. Somebody would take care of that. Well, guess what? That ain't the right way to think. William Carey was a groundbreaking missionary to India. When he proposed the idea of going to India to reach the lost at a gathering of fellow British pastors, a well-known minister named John Ryland looked at him and said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He will do it without your help or mine. No, it's not the case at all. God will do it. God wants our participation. He does. And as far as we can perceive, God oftentimes will wait for our participation. 
William Carey had the right idea. As a matter of fact, William Carey had this motto that he took with him to his grave. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. In other words, you can sit the rest of your life and wait for somebody else to do it and it never get done. What you ought to do is get up and do it yourself. Just saying. Right? Everybody in this building has heard the old phrase, well, if, you get, if it's going to be done right, I better do it myself. Why does that not work when it comes to the house of God? Hmm. We don't need to wait for other people to do it. Let me tell you something. You'll die waiting on somebody else to do it. There's a very real danger in setting off to the side. And sometimes we can even make it sound good. You know what? Well, how so? Like these people back in verse number two. Well, it's just not the right time. Can I tell you how the preachers do it? Well, I've been praying about it. It just, I don't know. I ain't got peace on that yet. Yes, I'm being mean to myself too. Let me tell you how we do it. Oh, preacher, I don't know. I just, I just don't feel like it's the right time. There's some things that are very serious. I didn't take this church flippantly. When I was approached to pastor this church, I didn't just go, yeah, man, let's do it. No. I made sure that was God's will. But let me tell you something, folks. Let me just tell you, the day I was approached by my pastor at Amazing Grace to get involved in several ministries in that church, I remember the day he called me into his office. I felt like I was going to the principal's office. And I sat down and I said, hey, pastor, what's going on? He said, I want you to pray about something. I said, okay, what you want me to pray about? He said, I need help in Sunday school. And I said, okay. He said, I want you to pray about helping me out. You know what I did? I looked at him, I said, if God's done spoke to your heart about it, the only thing I need to do is say, okay. Y'all feel, y'all get me on any of this? I didn't have to go pray about it. The pastor was telling me that he had already prayed about it. You know what my job was? Just do it. My job was to be faithful, not only to God, but be faithful to my pastor. Obey my pastor, in turn, obey God. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that to build myself up. I'm just giving you an illustration. We don't always have to say, well, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the right time. Because see, here's the thing. God knows our hearts. He knows us better than what we know. These people thought they had the wool over everybody's eyes. God shows up and says, yeah, so it's okay. You're wondering about whether it's time to build my house, but look at your houses. What was he saying? He was looking at them saying, you ain't got no reason to sit there and talk that foolishness. You need to get busy. 
Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. If we never attempt, I'm going to tell you something I read in a book not long ago got me under conviction. I tell you, I was reading a story behind the beginning of this, this church. This church is massive now. The pastors wrote several books and, and man, doing a work for God. And he said this, he said, he said in that book, he said, the church will never be more powerful than its prayer life. The prayer life of its people. The prayer. Prayer is the very lifeblood of that church. And he started talking about how they got involved in certain ministries and how they did this and how they did that. And, and he said, one of the first things I did was I stopped making excuses and just did it. I didn't know everything I was doing. I had never had any business over here. I had have never had any experience over here. But when it come to the work of God, it was important to just do it. He said after the church carried that mindset, he said it wasn't long people were coming into that church and I didn't know where they was coming from. He said souls were being saved. Lives were being rearranged. The people inside the church, some of them was getting saved. And he said, we were going on for God's glory. Why? Because we put our foot out and took the first step. A lot of times, God will wait. Because here's the thing, it's like the message last Sunday, talking about abominable prayers. What reason does He have to listen to us if we're not already obeying what He set forth in Scripture. Right? May have an amen there. It ain't pleasant, but it's true. These people knew that they should have been working on the house of God first. These people knew where their priorities should have been. And until they got the priorities straight, they never did anything. Throughout Scripture, we see this pattern. Here's the pattern. Heart change leads to behavioral change. What's wrong with them, people? What's wrong with these people, preacher? Their hearts were wrong. The root of the issue was their hearts. They had their minds set on themselves. And they didn't care about what was going on at God's house. But when their hearts changed, we're going to look at that tonight. Because I'm out of time. We're going to keep looking at this tonight. We're going to look at the remainder of the chapter and see what happened after they got their hearts right. Because a heart change always leads to a behavioral change. God expects our behavior to change. But He is clear that behavior is simply a reflection of our heart. When our hearts change, our behavior will follow. We're going to look at that tonight. We're going to look at the reaction of the people here. But I want you to understand, when God showed up on the scene here, He was angry. Why was He angry? Because His house must be built. It cannot lie in ruins. And it certainly should not be lying in ruins while our houses are built nice and lavish and beautiful. You might say, well, preacher, I don't know what this has to do with me. I mean, I got a beautiful house, but we got a beautiful church too. 
You're missing the point if you're just thinking about physicalness here. So many of us, we put things into our homes. We wouldn't, sure, there's a physical aspect of it. The house of God shouldn't need repair. It should have the funds necessary to to make things look nice and keep things nice. We ought to give financially to the church. But there's a spiritual aspect here, y'all. There's a spiritual aspect. When your mind is all on yourself in your house, I mean, you may do things at your house and you may build things up for yourself but never contribute one bit. Well, I give to the offering preacher. That's not what I'm talking about. There's another aspect of building God's house and it's not just brick and mortar. It's what you do on the outside in the community. It's what you do down at the grocery store. It's what you do in your own personal life. And let me tell you something, the spiritual uh, aspect of this church, (laughs) I'm telling you, the church is only going to be as spiritual as the people in the church are. And we are to be building the house of God. Let me put it this way. The Bible tells us to go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come into my house. Building is so much more than just brick and mortar. God's house must be built more than 2,500 years ago. The people of God here had neglected building the house of God. They built their own houses while ignoring His house. And let me tell you something today. In closing, God did not like it then, and He doesn't like it today. Let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Miss Dawn, you come play for us softly.